speculation has become crazy. Once you swallow the contents of this bottle, you have enormous profit. You just turn this one dial. The most powerful nootropic I've ever taken. Owning a share in American industry is like owning a share in the future of our nation. Faking it until you make it. Now is the time to buy. And then all of a sudden you change the world. Go mortgage your house and buy Bitcoin with it. Doing what you want to do in life is like being on vacation every single day. Welcome back to Griftonomics. Electric cars, underground tunnels, and autonomous vehicles are just a few of the fantastical ideas you've probably heard about when it comes to news coverage of the transport industry. But how did we get here? Are these sci-fi concepts really the future of our society? Or should we rethink more than just the dominance of the automobile as we consider the future of transport? To help us explore this topic, we're joined by Paris Marx, author of the book Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation, and host of the Tech Won't Save Us podcast. Welcome to the show, Paris. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about uh, Griftonomics. <laughs> yeah, well, this is there's a lot of, of grifts involved here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a, a lot to get through. Um, but before we start, uh, would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself, your history, and kind of what prompted you to, to get into writing this book? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been exploring these topics for a number of years. You know, I've been writing about them for uh, geez, six or seven now, mm -hmm. paid uh, probably for free before that, as far as I can remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so so I was interested in these things, like I've been interested in tech for ages. And, um, you know, I certainly went through more of an optimistic phase before, um, you know, developing the critical perspective I have on technology today. Um, and, and part of my route into tech criticism was really looking at companies like Uber and Airbnb and smart cities, like the concept more broadly. Um, and so, you know, I was writing about these things. And then in 2018, I started a master's degree because I wanted to explore it further. Um, mm -hmm. It was a master's in geography, looking specifically about what the tech industry was proposing for the future of transportation. Um, and so then when I finished that in 2020, um, you know, I'd already talked to some people about potentially putting a book together. Uh, and so I started mm -hmm. preparing a proposal and I spoke to, um, you know, the Leo Hollis, my editor at Verso Books, and they were immediately interested. And so, you know, then in 2021, I started working on putting the book together. Um, and now it's out there in the world for people to read. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. How's it? How's the release going at the book so far? I think pretty well. Like, you know, I've never released a book before. So <laughs> like, as far as I can tell, it seems like there's, you know, attention and interest in it. And the re reaction so far has been largely positive. So yeah, it seems good, I guess. <laughs> yeah, uh, awesome. Yeah, I'm reading it myself. Uh, I think it's a really good read and I recommend it to everybody. Um, Thank so you. just getting into it, um, it's interesting when we talk about the future of, of transport, because I think it's important to actually, and you do this in the book, go back and look at the beginnings of it. Um, so I was wondering if we could just start there and talk um, I, I think an interesting point you made in the book was that, you know, post the depression era, uh, automobile companies didn't really predict the future, which I think is what a lot of people say. Wow, they really predicted all this stuff would happen. What happened is they used their their power and, and resources to make that the future. So I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about that and how, you know, some of this has been a grift since the start. 
Yeah, I, I think going back to the early days gives us a good idea of like how things came to be, right? It's easy to sit here from where we are. Um, you know, I know you're in the States, but are from Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm in Canada, all very car-centric societies, mm-hmm. right? So it's easy to like exist in this world and to say, ah, oh, you know, it's just natural that things should be this way because this is the way it's been for a few generations. Um, and I think we just kind of have this like implicit idea if we think about the history that, you know, the car emerges and it's just natural that the car is then going to take over, right? Because this new technology exists, it fits into this idea we have about technological progress, right? The car is invented, so naturally everything's going to be remade and we're going to adopt the car and it's going to become the way that we get around. Like, obviously, that's what's going to happen, right? But then mm-hmm. when you actually go back and look at the history of transportation and what actually happened, yes, the automobile emerges, but there is like an existing norm for how the street actually works, right? Where you have people who are walking on the street, people who are taking bikes, people who are on the streetcars and the omnibuses and in horse-drawn carriages and all these Mm -hmm. sorts of things, right? And all of these people are existing in the same space and navigating that space together because they're all going relatively slow. Um, And there's a whole different idea for then how the street should work and how, you know, the social relations of the street are. And the automobile enters and really disrupts that. It doesn't fit into that, um, those existing norms, right? And so then there's a question of, you know, does the automobile take over and what does that look like? Or do we push the automobile out or restrict the automobile in ways to make it work within these norms? Um, And so, you know, the car starts to kill people on the streets of cities where they become more common. You Mm -hmm. know, the American city in particular, I draw from the work of Peter Norton in particular in in looking back at that period. Um, And there are a lot of people who are really distressed by that because it's killing children and young women in particular. And so there are a lot of demonstrations. There are posters put up to like draw attention to the fact that this is happening and Mm -hmm. to turn the public against the automobile. And it's important to to consider that in that moment in the city, um, the automobile was a luxury product, right? It was wealthier people who are owning them, who are getting the benefits of it. And it was, you know, the rest of society and particularly the poor who were feeling the consequences of that. And so it's only natural that there was this backlash. And Mm -hmm. so then, you know, it reaches the point where, you know, what is going to happen? How is this going to move forward? And there are a lot of interests that start to you know, get behind the automobile, whether it's the automotive companies themselves, the suppliers to the automotive companies, um, you know, the oil companies, the newspapers as well, because they start to get advertising dollars from the auto companies. Um, And so there's this coalition that forms in order to, you know, represent the automobile in order to push for changes to policies, to regulations on the government level in order to make the automobile, you know, natural right in order to remake the city in order to make room for the automobile and that's a process that happens over a number of decades right starting around the 1910s and 1920s but really gets entrenched in the in the post-war period and so that's yeah. sort of like what happens in that period but it's it's the power of these various groups and how the power of the automo the automotive industry ultimately overtakes the power of you know residents in cities who are trying to push back against it and so they are able to get the government to enact policies to entrench the automobile and a final piece on that is another important point of course is that you know at the time if you're depending on streetcars and trains and things like that labor has a lot more power to you know, control and dictate Mm, the transportation mm -hmm. system. Whereas if you uh, shift over to automobiles, sure, the people who are making the automobiles can go on strike and shut down the factories, but all the automobiles are still out in society and everything can keep moving, even if labor tries to get in the way of it. 
I think that's a really interesting point in that it, it seems like, you know, one of the, and you talk about this is one of the key things that the automobile did differently, which, you know, obviously would have appealed to, to the wealthier class is it was really centered on kind of individual freedom. Right. And I think that is an interesting contrast between what existed before <laughs> versus, you know, what the automobile, um, kind of represented. Absolutely. You know, like if you think about the train, if you think about the streetcar, the omnibus even, these are more collective means of getting around, right? And when you're in a city, that can largely work, right? Or, you know, if you're trying to get between places and, and taking the train, for example, right? That works. And, and, and it makes sense for people in order to do that, um, especially when you're connecting places that, you know, have a number of people living in them. But then, you know, the automobile, um, does offer this individual freedom. This is something that's noted quite, you know, clearly by people like Andre Gores, a social a social philosopher who I quote in the book, mm -hmm. um, who basically says that you know the automobile is basically associated with like a bourgeois ideology in a sense, right? It's this very kind of individualized notion of how to get around, how to move through space, um, and that's really associated with these particular ideas around. Um, individualism that would certainly be benefiting the upper classes in that moment but obviously that get adopted for much of the rest of society as well and in that moment of course it's easy to promise that the automobile is going to allow you as the individual to go where you want you can go faster than everybody else because this you know piece of technology offers you these freedoms that you didn't have before and of course you can go outside the city and reach places that um you know are a little bit further out easier mm. than other people could you know in the in, in that moment the car was often associated with touring um you know just going through these these scenic areas and things like that right um whereas you know over time the car becomes more of a, a mass object, right? And you need this idea of freedom in order to sell it to people, right? You're you're buying into this uh -huh. liberty. You're moving up in the world. Um, it, it's a symbol of wealth. Um, but as more and more people adopt it, even though it's sold with these ideas of like the open road and you can go everywhere and what have you, as it becomes a mass product, right? Everyone gets stuck in traffic because the the geography of this just doesn't right work. that was going to be another question right like you or, you already mentioned uh, uh kind of the injuries that that continue to happen they obviously they used to be a lot worse car safety wasn't where it is today but you know there used to be a lot of injuries but also how did we get how did the automobile come so entrenched um when there are things when you think about it traffic jams just the idea of commuting you know t spending an hour each way every day getting into into your office in the city um, these things aren't great. Um, and so like, can you just talk a bit about like, how did we kind of all develop this collective delusion that, that in a, in a sense, you know, having a car that we spend so much time in is actually the pinnacle of, of transportation. Yeah, it's a fantastic question, right? And I'll, I'll pull, go back to Peter Norton, you know, the, the historian who I mentioned earlier. And he says that when the automobile kind of emerges, there's not only the need for a physical reconstruction of the street, right? You need to change the way that the street is designed. You need to change the way that the city is designed in order to spread it out further so that 
you know, you can make room for the cars by spreading out people because cars need a lot of space, right? They're large mm -hmm, objects, mm -hmm. they go fast, they need to park, all these sorts of things, right? So that physical reconstruction is necessary in order to put in the lights and, and all the other infrastructure that the automobile needs. Um, mm -hmm. But then paired with that is also the need for a social reconstruction. So you need to change the way that people think about the cities and about mobility. And one example that Peter Norton gives is that there's this idea of the jaywalker that is introduced in that moment. So at, you know, before the automobile, it was completely normal for people to cross wherever they wanted in the street. You know, on the side streets, children would be playing. That was not mm -hmm. unheard of, um, you know, because where else were they going to do that? There weren't so many of the public spaces, so people would play in the street. And because things were moving relatively slowly, you know, there wasn't so much risk associated with it yeah. as there was when cars became more common. Um, and so... You know, this idea of the jaywalker is introduced to say, you know, all of you people who are crossing wherever you want, you are actually hicks. Like you don't understand the the way that it works in the cities. You're from the rural areas. Like you don't get it, right? If you don't cross at one of these new designated crossing areas, you know, you don't understand what city life means um, and, and you need to learn that. And this these were public information campaigns that were done over time, certainly pushed by the newspapers who were, you know, associated with the automobile lobby, but the auto companies in ads that they were buying and things like that as well to change the way that people thought of the streets at the same time or as this physical reconstruction was also taking place um, in order to change the actual street design to make way for the automobile, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, that's something that happens over a period of time as well, the entrenchment of the automobile and the rebuilding of communities, um, you know, and, and that's something that certainly is happening before the Second World War, but really takes off in the aftermath when there's a greater investment in building out the suburbs in kind of post-war America, Canada, I'm sure Australia as well. Um, and also the investment in, you know, the interstate highway system or the Trans-Canada Highway System in Canada to really build out the road network, build out the suburban uh, environments to really make people depend on the automobile and to sell them on this idea that this is the future, this is beneficial. And of course, before the automobile becomes a mass product, before it becomes entrenched, it's easy to say it's all good things and no bad things because you don't have the experience of the bad things yet, right? You don't have mm. the smog in the city and you don't have the traffic so much and all these sorts of things. Those come along later when more and more people are uh, have purchased an automobile and become dependent on it and there's really no more alternatives because you've built communities in a way to make people dependent on the automobile and then you've also kind of slowly taken away the alternatives, whether it is tearing up the streetcar lines, um, or or gutting the the train system and all these sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's just fantastic to kind of reflect on because I think a lot of people do that that kind of reflection. They just assume that well, cars are the way we get around, right? And so um, they don't think of a future where that might not necessarily be the case. Um, but so that's how the automobile industry kind of got a hold of of the you know and reeducated, I guess, society in a sense. But um, flashing forward many decades. Um, how does Silicon Valley get involved? How do we start to get into a place where the mindset of, of Silicon Valley is that their job is to now improve transport? Yeah, it's a really good question. And certainly it happens in different ways in different like segments of the transport industry and, and their involvement, right? But certainly you can see that in particular, like the internet companies, you know, mm -hmm. grow larger over time. Um, and you, you know, companies like Google are 
interested in expanding into other areas and they have their more experimental divisions where you, they can use all the money that they get from search and advertising in order to funnel it into more experimental projects, right? And so they're interested in things like autonomous driving quite early. Um, mm. You know, in, in the first decade of the 2000s, they're working on this and at the same moment as the federal government is still investing in these technologies um, and is running um, like experiments and, and, you know, offering prizes for different teams to try to develop autonomous driving systems. And then if they have the best one, like they'll get a prize from the government, from the Defense Department, I believe it is. Um, mm. And then Google sees these teams and starts to hire some of the people off the more successful ones. And that's where Anthony Lewandowski comes from, of course, who, you know, becomes a, a featured player in some of these stories, whether it's mm -hmm. at Google and, and Uber later. And then at the same time, there's also this kind of ideology that has emerged or this idea that has emerged that the tech industry really knows what the future is going to be, right? And we need to rely on the tech industry in order to deliver that. So even if it's not these big internet companies like Google, there's still other companies that are getting started and that are trying to apply like the tech model into transportation or, or to various other industries, right? And so Tesla is one example of that where mm -hmm. they say, you know, we're entering the automotive sector and we're going to bring these new technologies and try to revolutionize it with electric vehicle technology. Or we have Uber enter and say, um, you know, we need to disrupt the taxi industry because it doesn't work well right now. And if people adopt our shared model of driving with our new um, app, then it's going to make transportation like so incredible, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know, the core of this is that there are, as we've been talking about, real problems with the transportation system right now, right? Because we are so dependent on automobiles. We're all stuck in traffic. A ton of people die every year as a result of crashes. That number is going up in the United States. It's over mm. 42,000, I believe, right now a year, which is really significant. Um, and then, you know, there are our health issues that come with it. People hate being stuck in traffic, all these sorts of things, you know, and many more you can, yeah. you can pile on top of it. And so there are real problems there. And so the tech industry and, and these companies can seize on them and say, look, we recognize that there are these problems. And so now we're going to come and try to solve them with our new technologies. And just as we can see in many other sectors, when you ignore kind of the politics, you know, why things are like that in the beginning, which is why I think it was important to go through the history in the book. Um, mm -hmm it's harder to solve those problems because just adding a few new technologies into an existing system that exists in the way it does because of particular political decisions over many decades isn't going to solve the really deeper root problems. That makes total sense. I think it's a case of where there are plenty of nails uh, to hit. I think the problem is that Silicon Valley is like, well, we'll use the same hammer. We've been using yeah. for everything else to, to, to fix that. Um, you mentioned briefly government funding. I just want to talk about that for a second. Um, firstly, I'm, I'm just interested in why the government were interested in funding autonomous, like what what motivated the the government to to want to fund and give prizes to these these people at developing autonomous driving how does that help the government but then also if you could just talk a little bit about how much the industry of you know uh of the future of kind of the automobile has been uh, especially companies like tesla have been uh, essentially stood up by government funding yeah it's an important question because it's an aspect of this that 
you know, conveniently gets downplayed all the time in the same way that the role of the government in funding, you know, Silicon Valley from since like World War II to make it mm -hmm. what it is today often gets like, you know, kind of written out of the histories and, and kind of ignored, <laughs> right? Um, right? Because the tech industry wants you to think of it as entrepreneurial and, and you know, mm -hmm. really linked with the free market and blah, 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 right? And not dependent on the government, which is not really entirely true. Um, and so, you know, if we think about autonomous vehicle technology, the interest in this is largely defense oriented, right? Um, if you can have autonomous driving technologies that you can deploy in the battlefield, that's really, um, you know, attractive to the defense department. Mm. Um, you know, noting that the United States has the largest military in the world. Um, and a lot of the funding that has been deployed around technology over the course of many decades has come from the defense department has, and has been focused on kind of defense deployments and, and defense uses, right? How mm. can these things benefit the military and, and the goals of the military? And so this has driven a lot of that investment in technology over sense. the course of, you know, virtually a century now, right? Um, you know, whether it's going back to the Cold War and keeping ahead of the Soviet Union or, you know, needing to defeat the Nazis or, you know, many other reasons mm -hmm. uh, that they're interested in these things. And so the, the Defense Department is heavily involved in funding technological development. And certainly, you know, in Silicon Valley, we talk about how there are all these internet companies there, um, but it's also a hub of the military industrial complex because that's mm -hmm. right alongside yeah. of it, you know, right? But that, that part doesn't uh, get included in Silicon Valley so, so often. Um, and so, you know, more broadly than that, as I was saying, you know, the government is heavily involved in, in funding these companies. The government has funded the development of quote unquote alternative fuels, battery technology over the course mm -hmm. of many decades, you know, in the seventies, there was a renewed push for that. There was money for it, uh, in the nineties, I believe as well. Um, and certainly they are involved in helping Tesla today. Um, and, Certainly, that's something else that, um, you know, companies like Tesla don't want people to know about so much. Um, you know, Tesla has received loans and support from the federal government in order to keep it going, um, like around the 2008 recession, uh, when it was really in trouble and the government funding helped to um, show that it was you know, dependable, that it was something that was going to stick around so that it, it could get investment from Daimler in order to continue, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you know, if you think about the electric vehicle, and if you think about Tesla's in particular as early electric vehicles, it also benefited from a lot of subsidies in order to encourage um, buyers to go out and actually purchase an electric vehicle, right? Because you would get a, an amount of money off of the purchase price. Uh, and of course, you know, one of the criticisms that can be made there is that a lot of those early electric vehicles that were sold, quite expensive vehicles, were mm -hmm. to rather wealthy people who probably didn't need a subsidy in the first place. Right. Um, and so was that, you know, well um, distributed cash. And now, of course, in this moment where uh, more and more automakers are producing electric vehicles um, and Tesla until recently had used up, I believe, its quota of um subsidies that it could receive for, from the federal government. Uh, so Elon Musk came out last year or earlier this year and started to say that he didn't support electric vehicle subsidies any longer um, mm -hmm. because his company was being excluded from them. Now, there was a new electric vehicle mandate or a new electric vehicle subsidy passed in the Inflation Reduction Act recently. Um, and so I don't know what Tesla's stance is on that or if or if Elon Musk has said something, something on it <laughs> um, because it does offer up 
open up new subsidies to Tesla. The money um, might be back on the board for them. So yeah, maybe they'll yeah. change their tune. Yeah. It, it, would it be accurate to, to say that there's a, a likelihood that Tesla may not exist in the form that it did today if it weren't for government funding and subsidies? Yeah, I I would certainly be fine saying that. Um, like even if you go back to looking at the subsidies that went into the development of battery technology over the course mm. of a long period of time, like would it reach the stage that it is today without public support? Um, and then you know there has been um, you know money for Tesla over time that it has benefited from that has allowed the company to stay afloat. Um, and yeah, I think it's certainly benefited from that. And I think it would be fair to say that the government, as much as Elon Musk would want to deny it and his fans would want to deny it, is really integral to Tesla, you know, being how it is today. And that's not to say that it didn't also benefit from Musk, like pushing a ton of cash into the company um, sure. and, you know, the early, um, you know, the early people who started the company before Musk came on board, putting these things together. Um, but Tesla you know, undoubtedly benefited from government support. Um, it's, and it's funny because it's just, that's not the narrative that they, they, they like to weave. Um, of course. <laughs> well, th but that's, that's common for all these companies, right? Like yeah. they have a particular um, history, a particular narrative on themselves that they want people mm -hmm. to believe. Um, and they don't want you to think or, or even to know about the things that would contradict those narratives, right? Like even if we go back to, you know, the early tech companies and, and how they came out of government support. If we look at how Apple got, um, you know, small business loans in order to mm. get started, if we look at how Google was developed, like in Stanford, like with public funding and mm -hmm. then was privatized and spun off, um, you know, there's so many ways that the government is really integral and its funding is really integral to creating the tech industry as it currently exists. You know, there's that book that, um, Mariana Mazzucato wrote the entrepreneurial state that really goes into all the ways that the iPhone like is dependent on government money, all, like all the technologies in it. And the real innovation of Apple is just putting them in one package, not really, you know, innovating to create new technologies in a way. Um, yeah. And so I think that's always really interesting to me, right, to see how the tech industry frames itself and then to actually dig into the history of these things and see like what the reality is and how that contradicts with how these companies want us to think about them. Yeah, I think it's just it's interesting because like the, the funding there is, is specifically in the case of Tesla going towards something that it can really be defined as kind of a luxury good and these are these these kind of expensive electric electric cars but then it it floats by the virtue of kind of this uh greenwashing that that happens around it and saying that that no actually it benefits everybody so that's a segue into what i wanted to talk about next some of these new zany cool ideas that people have um electric cars self-driving cars that kind of stuff can we start with electric cars um you talk about this in the book but you know are, are electric cars actually inherently kind of eco-friendly? Are they are they saving the environment? Um, you know, and I think the answer maybe is somewhere in between. But I'd love if you could explain kind of the the gray area there. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's certainly somewhere in between. Um, and I would just say, like, on the the question of public funding to, to kind of close mm -hmm. that off, like part of the argument, like, yeah, the early Teslas and even many of the Teslas that are still sold, I would say our luxury products. But the idea from the government is that, okay, we give this company money now and it's able to kind of innovate on this technology or whatnot to allow it to become a mass mm. product, right? Mm. That's that's the idea inherent there. Whether it has worked out as planned, I think we could certainly 
question because you know Elon Musk certainly hasn't delivered on that. The Model Three was supposed to be thirty thousand dollars, and it's something like forty-seven, forty-eight thousand to start. Most people will be paying over fifty thousand. Um, so you know it hasn't really worked out as planned. And maybe there. the Cybertruck will be the the actual thing yeah. for the average Joe. <laughs> yeah, wait now. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the electric car, like, I, I feel like it's always important for me to preface when I talk about electric cars and say, I'm not anti-EV. Like, I, mm, especially mm. when we look at societies like Australia, Canada, and the United States, like, I don't think we're ridding them of automobiles anytime in the near future. Um, but I do think we need to reduce the amount of cars that are on the road. And that is really key to, like, you know, a sustainable transportation system and, and reducing emissions. So cars are going to be around to some degree, especially sure. in rural areas. Um, and so I do think that the electric vehicle plays a, plays an important role in that case and that, um, you know, they will be around, they will be adopted and they should be because the electric vehicle does offer a material you know, benefit over the fossil fuel vehicle in that when you look at the life cycle emissions, if you use an electric vehicle like you use an internal combustion vehicle, generally the emissions are going to be less when you look at the full life cycle, right? And mm. it really depends on the amount of time that you drive it. And this is the problem with some of these Teslas is that where they are luxury vehicles, where they are one of a number of vehicles that some of these wealthy people will own, they don't actually replace all their miles of driving with the electric vehicle. And so mm. one important thing to understand is that the emissions from the internal combustion vehicle mainly come from driving it, right? The actual production emissions are a small amount of its total life cycle emissions emissions. Whereas with the EV, a lot of more of its emissions are in the production side because of the battery and how emissions intensive that is. And so then if you buy the EV and you don't drive it very much, you're not getting the environmental benefit mm. than if like, you know, you replaced your Toyota Corolla or something with an EV and then drove it all the time and like drove it into the ground, right? That's where you really get the benefit is driving it a lot. Um, mm. And so then my concern is, you know, on one side, of course, what Tesla has done so far, but then when we also have the positioning of the electric vehicle as like zero emissions or green, I think that leaves out, you know, the negative aspects of the EV and how it's still a car and it still has a lot of problems as a result, right? So a lot of local air pollution doesn't come from the tailpipe emissions. It comes from wear to the tires, wear to the brakes and dust that's mm. kicked up off the road already. Um, and of course, that's that results in health problems um, and it's estimated in the United States to result in more than 50,000 premature deaths a year and that's something that the EV can actually make worse because it's heavier because it has that big battery right and so I mm -hmm. think that's something that we need to think about but then the real key part of this is you know what goes into that battery right all of the mining that is necessary in order to produce those batteries um, and that means you know the um, what is that called the International Energy Agency, I believe it is. Okay. Uh, maybe the IEA. Uh, if I if I have the uh, the name wrong, people can tell me. Um, <laughs> you know, just off the top of my head. But I, I think it's the International Energy Agency. Um, but anyway, they say that if we really you know take this transition. Um, where we're really dependent on electric vehicles rather than, you know, getting cars off the road and getting more people onto bikes and into transit and things like that, that sure. we're going to see increases in demand for lithium of more than 4,100%, cobalt for more than 2,100%, and other minerals, you know, 
to really significant amounts as well, right? And that means that there's going to need to be a lot more extraction, resource extraction by mining companies. Most of that will happen in the global south in places that, you know, we already kind of look away from the harm that we cause there. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it continues these kind of unequal relationships. But then if we expand that, you know, the harm is just amplified, right? And so you get not only the environmental harm, you know, using up fresh water, um, polluting environments, things like that. But then there are also harms to communities and to workers as well, which is really concerning, right? And I think that this should be part of the conversation around the EV instead of just acting as though, you know, just because it is you know, do better to a certain degree than the fossil fuel vehicle that we should just accept that. Um, and there are going to be consequences regardless. But as long as we get rid of the fossil fuels, that's okay. Because we're mm-hmm. in this moment where we have the opportunity to make a choice, right? The climate crisis and needing to change our transportation system offers us a choice to really think about what that future is going to look like. And so do we, you know, try to go on a more radical path and make serious investments in transit and cycling infrastructure and, you know, kind of rethinking how we build our communities in order to enable, um, a different way of getting around or do we just say okay everyone's uh driving their fossil fuel powered trucks and suvs now and we're just going to have them drive trucks and suvs with big batteries instead and you know that's solving the problem when it really isn't yeah i think a lot of people don't even know about the existence of lithium mining as a dependency for yeah. for batteries because it, it just isn't brought up a lot right um but you are in essence replacing fossil fuel mining for for the mining of lithium but in the words of elon musk we will coo whoever we want right yeah so. <laughs> yeah but, you know and, and that was post uh the overthrow or or the coup of uh evo morales in in bolivia right, right. And, and bolivia has a lot of lithium um and you know evo was of course saying after it that it was a lithium coup that he was that he was coup right. because uh the united states wanted to get the lithium i think you know the people who i know who are like really deep on this file aren't really sure that's exactly what happened that was more of an, sure. an excuse right but i but i do think that there's you know a kernel in there that we should pull from it because we can see right now that you know fossil fuel and reliance on fossil fuels has a lot of negative political impacts around the world when governments are depending on, are dependent on it and it can also be used to fund you know groups and things like that and we can also see the united states and other you know western countries going around the world to you know cause wars in order to protect their supply of oil um over the course of many decades you know the iraq war comes to mind most recently um and now as we make this transition to reliance on you know minerals and particular minerals in order to to you know fuel the supply chains for our electric vehicles um, i think that we can expect other negative political impacts as a result you know if we think about the democratic republic of the congo where a lot of the cobalt comes from that goes into not just electric cars but our phones and laptops and other electronics you know a lot of the money from that also funds rebel groups over there and has fueled a a civil war or you know local wars that have been going on for a long time Um, and so there are plenty of other potential impacts here especially in a moment where the united states canada europe are very focused on securing their supply chains for these minerals for these vehicles Um, and this is very explicit in the inflation reduction act that was passed recently where the um, ev credits the the subsidies that they're offering to buyers really depend on the percentage of minerals that are extracted from approved supply chains so either like domestic in these countries or countries that say the united states has 
um, free trade deals with or, or specific trade deals with. And so it's really about ensuring that the supply chains fit within their kind of sphere of influence. Um, and right now, many electric vehicles do not meet that standard because a lot of these minerals come from, you know, cut the Congo, where, mm-hmm. you know, that's not part of a trade deal with the United States or from China. China is a big supplier of um, rare earths and other minerals that are necessary for these things. Um, so there's going to be a real focus on supply chains as this moves forward. And if our transition is very much focused on this really um, resource intensive extractive process, um, you know, I think it's going to have consequences that we're not really thinking about, or that many people aren't thinking about right now. Yeah, yeah I, I think, I think, you know, mineral extraction carries with it a lot of the same consequences and externalities of fossil fuel extraction. I just think it isn't, it isn't widely talked about yet. But you know, we, we, we haven't, we haven't had a cobalt war or, <laughs> or, or, or lithium war yet. Um, yeah. But um, so I want to keep moving on. Um, in sure. the essence of, of time, um, we won't get to talk about Uber, but I do recommend people go and read the book because the the chapter about uh, kind of ride sharing and everything is fantastic. Um, I want to spend a bit of time on self-driving cars. So um, if you could just kind of walk through the history, we talked a little bit about the defense applications there, but um, I'd love to hear just kind of one about the history of, of, of why why people think that uh, you know autonomous driving or self-driving cars are going to solve some of those problems we talked about earlier. Um, I'd love to hear about some of the, the scandals involved. There's been some recent ones about you know that seems to have Tesla fans on their knees pretending to be kids, which seems interesting. Um, and and also just if 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 full self-driving is is misleading advertising. Uh, absolutely yes. <laughs> Let's start there. Um, you know like. Munich, according to Munich, has already found that autopilot and and full self-driving are misleading, right? Mm. And now California, the California DMV is kind of following in those footsteps in in seeking to do the same. And so, yeah, it's like it's there's no way you could not think it is, I guess, right. unless you're part of the cult, right? You just call um, it a beta and it's all okay, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how it works. Um, but no, I, I think it's really interesting. And like, you know, the book gets into a bit of the history of like self-driving and ideas around it as well, right? Where you go back to the 1920s and these ideas are already, you know, in the air, right? Are already being mm-hmm. talked about. Um, there's a demonstration that's put on in a number of cities um, about a so-called, uh, you know, self-driving car. I believe it's called a phantom driver at the time. And what it is, is it's like remote controlled, the, the car is. But mm-hmm. for people who are seeing it, like it looks like the car is driving itself and like there's wonder. And the newspapers at the time are like in a few decades, like this is going to be everywhere. This is going to be normal, right? Um, and then when... Uh, GM is promoting its, you know, vision of the future. Um, part of that is, is that uh, cars will be able to drive themselves because there will be radio signals in the highways that will guide them along. Um, and this is supposed to be ready by the 60s and, of course, is is not. There are some trials of it, but it, it never gets off the ground. And there are more experiments in the United States, in Japan, in Germany over the course of, you know, the, the second half of the 20th century, but, you know, again, they, they don't get off the ground. Um, and so then, you know, we see the most recent iteration of this, um, you know, in the early 2000s and in particular in the um, 2010s when you have Google first really getting on board and, and pushing these ideas. You know, Sergey Brin is heading up um, the X division and they're talking a lot about 
you know, how self-driving is going to improve transportation and improve the city. And then, of course, uh, Elon Musk and Tesla get on board and start saying the same sorts of things. I believe it's right after um, Google was looking at acquiring Tesla and then didn't. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you know, um, Elon Musk is interested in in self-driving technology as well. And then, of course, Uber jumps on board as well because it wants to get rid of its human drivers and replace them with, with t- you know, a computer instead because so they don't have to pay them. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, there, there are a number of companies that are promoting these ideas and like the tech industry does, and especially as it had to in this moment, you know, it couldn't just, you know, say very simple things about it. There had to be mm-hmm. like a broader vision of how it was going to transform society, right? And so what you get initially from Google, but then from these other companies is this idea that once these cars are equipped with this technology that can allow them to drive themselves within cities, you're going to solve traffic because they're going to be so much more efficient. You're going to solve um, you know, the human deaths that happen on the road because they'll be able to see the the human and never run into them. Um, mm. You'll be able to get places where you're going, you know, more efficiently, and you'll be able to look at your phone while you're going anywhere. You won't have to look at, um, you know, the road. And people who are currently underserved by transportation will be able to be served by these systems because they'll be so much cheaper and more accessible, right? And so it was, you know, all upside, no downside, right? <laughs> and of course, the key to this was it was only going to take a few more years to develop. It was right around the corner. So why would you invest in transit today when we're going to have all these um, autonomous cars tomorrow uh, and like a very quick tomorrow, right? Um, And of course, this narrative continued for a little while until 2018 when, of course, the cars were already supposed to be ready um, when the Uber vehicle uh, hit... you know, a pedestrian in Tempe, Arizona right. and killed her. And that was the first human who died as a result of these systems. And it was in that moment when, you know, the narrative really changed, right? All of a sudden, every company except for Tesla was saying that, okay, we need to be more cautious. It's going to take a lot longer to develop these technologies. A lot of them admitted and many more do now that the level five self-driving where it can do anything and go everywhere will never arrive and what's more likely is a level four technology that can uh that's geofence that can do a lot of things within a particular area but can't go everywhere and can't do everything and will still need some human intervention in order to get where it's going to need to go and an executive at volkswagen said that you know what they saw was that for a self-driving car to work you know, you're going to need to have good weather conditions. You're going to need to have really well-maintained roads and infrastructure, and you're going to need to have up-to-date 3D mapping of the environment. And how many cities are going to actually have, you know, those set conditions? I think it's pretty limited. Um, And so that's part of the reason why, you know, they're still not here, right? Because these tech companies and these executives really overestimated their ability to develop this technology, right? Mm -hmm. And so now you know, really the one who keeps pushing these visions to a certain degree is Elon Musk, right? And the idea is, you know, if you buy your Tesla, it is going to become much more valuable in the future because it's going to have this technology on it and it will be able to be be a robo taxi and, you know, go and serve people and make money for you. Or, you know, it will just be able to drive you wherever you want to go. Um, And that promise, and this is something that Elon Musk said very recently, was that, if full self-driving doesn't work out, Tesla is basically worthless, right? We know that Tesla has been like, its share price is just ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. It's worth so much more than other automakers. And part of that is related to the fact that he keeps 
building it up and making these big promises around what's actually going to be delivered beyond just electric cars that he's not able to deliver on, but keeps saying, you know, is right around the corner, is just going to come next year, is is almost ready. Um, and of course, his his cult has become really tied up in this, right? Mm. The idea that, you know, autopilot or full self-driving don't work as as Elon Musk promises, it's not really something that they can accept, right? I, in many cases, they are financially invested in the company. Um, and so, you know, if it drops, then they lose money. But they also just believe in Musk and what he sells and what he represents. And they want him to be right. Um, and they are very personally invested in that as well. Mm, yeah, I've seen them kind of go and do like these experiments on video and stuff like that, kind of like how flat earthers do to try and prove that the <laughs> earth is flat. But like what I guess, you know, I, what, what is motivating? Like, obviously, those people are heavily invested. So I imagine there's kind of a sunk cost there. They're like trying to rationalize it to themselves. But like, is, is that it? Because I, I guess I, I don't really understand, you know, and I haven't owned a car in the last 13 years. And so I, I probably, you know, am not qualified to comment. But I I don't see what the, the why self-driving is so such a big value proposition to, to a person, right? Like, isn't part of being able to get out there and drive in that whole kind of personal freedom that we were talking about earlier about having the control uh, and having the the autonomy on the on the road like are these people actually really excited about full self-driving or are they excited about the fact that it being delivered or them being able to manifest it into existence will help their share price or the value of their car that they bought um I'm certainly not going to claim that I can get inside the head of these people right. because I right. certainly don't understand how they think, right? Sure. But I would I would absolutely say that it goes beyond financial interest, right? It's not just because they right. own some stock and they they want it to appreciate. Like at this point, I think that their their being, their idea of who they are, their idea of the world that we should live in is very intertwined with Elon Musk and what he represents, right? And and the kind of world that he is trying to sell to people and the kind of vision that that he wants to put forward. Um, and I think that that is really concerning, right? When we think about the challenges that we face right now, when we think about the future that is ahead of us and, and that we can achieve, someone like Elon Musk is not really, you know, trying to solve the real problems that are ahead of us um, when we need to deal with the cost of living crisis that's ahead of us right now, the housing crisis, the climate crisis in particular. Um, I would argue that Elon Musk's main contribution is to distract people from the real problems that we face, right? If we mm -hmm. need to improve transportation, something that he's been quite, you know, invested in for the past two decades, um, as we've been talking about, a key piece of that is going to be investing in transit, making better cycling infrastructure for people to allow people to get out of their cars. Time and time again, Elon Musk intervenes to get in the way of those things, right? To stifle those things, to say, instead of transit, um, you know, autopilot and full self-drive will be here in just a few years. Why should you put your money into that when Will it's going to be obsolete? about that for a second? I, I recently saw that it was it came out um, or was validated at least that Elon Musk kind of shut down um, or announced uh, Hyperloop, I think it was, to um, essentially shut down high-speed rail for people in, in California. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it's kind of shocking to me that this has blown up. Like 
you know, it was in my timepiece and, and a Gizmodo mm-hmm. interview that I did recently and just went like super viral. And it's it's fascinating to me that that's the case because I'm quoting and, and citing Elon Musk's biography, which was published in 2015. Mm. Um, and so like this fact has been out there. I tweeted it in 2019 and it got yeah. some attention then. Um, but I think it speaks to me that about how like the idea and like the public kind of consciousness on Elon Musk has changed so much in those seven years, I guess, since the book came out. Like it was in there, a ton of people read it, but nobody really picked up on it or drew attention to it or anything like this. Meanwhile, in 2022, when I say, hey, uh, you know, in Elon Musk's biography, it says this, all of a sudden, like, it gets a ton of attention and blows up. Um, And so that's really fascinating to me. And as you say, yeah, like, you know, what Elon Musk's biographer, Ashley Vance, describes is that, you know, there was this effort to make high-speed rail a reality in California to move it forward. And Elon Musk did not agree with it. He was not interested in it. He thought that this wasn't the way forward, that this was an old technology that should not be adopted. And that is where the idea for Hyperloop came from. He wanted to put this idea out into the world, even though he had no intention of pursuing it, of trying to build it himself, just to disrupt the conversation around California high-speed rail, right? To give more energy to the opponent's of that project. And it's so interesting to me that, and this is something that that Vance even writes in the book, that the early proposal for Hyperloop was not even like a train for passengers so much, but was a train for cars. You would drive your car onto a pod and it would be part of this Hyperloop train thing and shoot off in the vacuum tube. And, you know, then you think later when the boring company comes along and his platforms in the tunnels under cities, like you can see how these ideas are related to one another. But the goal for Musk, and he says this to Vance, like Vance writes this in the book, that he wanted to see the project canceled. And so how can you think anything else other than, you know, this is a guy who makes automobiles, who has a very particular kind of experience of the transportation system and of the world as a really rich guy um, who likes to drive his cars and his sports cars and stuff, who is actively stifling alternatives for the rest of the population um, because, you know, he says openly that he thinks it's an old technology or whatever. But also, you know, he has this, this kind of, obvious incentive to try to force people to you know stay reliant on cars and to stay in cars because he's an automaker but he also kind of believes that in this kind of ideology of the automobile that we've been talking about that's just yeah like it's one thing to to go out and try and create these these things or or you know like full self-driving but then to actively sabotage the public infrastructure is just a really kind of nefarious thing um yeah, so, like, I'll give you one yeah. more example too, um, because the boring company is completely in this realm as well, right? Uh, instead of building transit, let's just build a ton of trains or a bunch of, a bunch of tunnels under cities for cars <laughs> instead of real public transit, right? It's just a joke. And in I believe it was Fort Lauderdale, um, because a number of cities have like expressed interest in this at this point, even though like the one in Las Vegas is a complete joke. Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> the the 
the local government in Fort Lauderdale went to Elon Musk and the Boring Company and were like, we need a train or we need a tunnel for a train because our bridge is like falling down. It's way too mm. old, but we want it done on the cheap. And we heard that you guys do cheap tunnels, right? Um, and so we need this train tunnel. And when it actually came time to like sign an agreement with the city, what they got was not a train tunnel for you know their aging infrastructure to fix that but a tunnel for teslas to go to the beach in fort lauderdale and so it was like you know they came to the boring company for this very specific thing and then got something completely different that doesn't actually serve their needs or the needs of the public like it's just you know that's just ridiculous. absolutely crazy yeah. um <laughs> the so i think we've done a decent job of kind of summarizing this but just, just to kind of cap it um on this show, we talk about kind of what is the grift? Is it well? Is it a grift? What is the grift? Who is standing to benefit and who is standing to kind of suffer? Um, so I was wondering if you could just kind of share you know, what you think there. Yeah, well, you know, I think that we've kind of been discussing it, right? Like, yeah. I think it's very much a grift, and I think that these companies benefit from selling us these lies about you know how these technologies are going to make the transportation system so much better because it's very profitable to continue this kind of system right part of the reason that our societies are so dependent on the automobile was that the government kind of publicly subsidized the expensive parts of that building out the infrastructure the suburbs all those sorts of things um, and then you know auto companies construction companies all these other commercial interests really benefited from forcing everyone to buy their own suburban home buy their own automobile you know buy their mm -hmm. insurance get their maintenance done buy their oil and gas to fill it up all these sorts of things right it's a very profitable system um Meanwhile, these tech companies come around and they want to insert themselves in it, but they also act to, you know, as we've been saying, by ignoring the politics of this, how it came to be the way it is, stifling an effort to move away from it, right? Um, and so instead of, you know, trying to increase the energy for better public transit and better cycling infrastructure, changing the way our communities are built, building more public housing, you know, they move into that conversation and they say, actually, we just have these technologies and if you wait a bit, they'll be around and they'll solve all the problems that you actually want to have solved and we won't have to like physically change what's going on and all this sort of stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, and certainly it, it benefits Elon Musk to keep us in cars because, you know, he, he is a car maker himself. Um, yeah. But then these other companies, like they benefit from getting the data that comes from all of these technologies being sure. inserted into our cars as, you know, these infotainment systems and, and all these other means mm -hmm. of data collection get added to the automobile itself. So it maintains a really profitable system, even though it has all these negative externalities, all these costs that come with it that we pay as a society. And then it adds new ways to extract more profit from that system without changing it in the way that we really need to if we want to address the problems that come from it and, you know, the climate crisis and these other kind of bigger problems that it's associated with. That's, yeah, that that's a good way of looking at it. I think that it's it's terrible, though. <laughs> oh, um, absolutely. So <laughs> one, one of the things I've been trying to do more recently is be less of a doomer. So can you talk just very quickly about um, what what a, a different, better future might look like if, if, if things actually change for the, for the better. 
Absolutely. You know, we, we've talked about it a bit, right? But I think mm -hmm. what we'd really want to see is much more focus going into expanding those collective means of transportation, right? right? So really expanding the public transit system, making that more reliable, more frequent, um, covering a wider area so that people can really depend on it, right? So that there's a real alternative for a lot of people to get around within the city, but yeah. also to improve the cycling infrastructure so that there are dedicated lanes for people. They know they won't get hit by a car and there's secure parking. Parking so that they know that if they go somewhere, they can park their bike and it won't get stolen while right. they're, you know, going to work or going to a restaurant or picking up the groceries, whatever, right? Um, so to have that dependability, to know that you can do, have these alternatives and it will work. Then between cities, you also need a solution, right? Um, in the United States or, or in Canada, that means a real reinvestment in the rail system that has been underinvested in for too long, especially the passenger side of that rail system um, to ensure that there are better passenger services. And really, like, we need some high-speed rail here. Like, it's yeah. ridiculous <laughs> that we don't have it, right? Um, and so to to really ensure that those infrastructures and those alternatives are there, those collective means of getting around that will enable people to get out of automobiles. And then the final thing I say about this, because I think it's really important when we think about, you know, this in kind of a systemic perspective, we can talk about transportation all, all that we want, right? But we need to also recognize that transportation is connected to so many other cities or systems within cities and our communities, right? Um, and so if we improve transportation infrastructure, improve transit, improve cycling. Um, but then, you know, we still have a private housing system. The, the prices of those houses are just going to go up. And some of the people who would most benefit, lower income people who would most benefit from those changes and those improvements to public transportation and whatnot will be pushed out of those neighborhoods yeah. to people where they don't have those benefits, right? And so, you know, we need to think about what's going to be good for the transit system and and public transportation and all these sorts of things. But then we also need to think about how it relates to other systems to make sure that we're investing in public housing um, You know that is designed in a way that it's within these kind of transit-oriented communities where you can easily access you know the services that you rely on. You can get to work more easily without having to drive a really long distance um, like our communities are currently set up. So, you know, it's a it's a change to how we think about communities, certainly. Um, but I think that especially when we think about solving the problems that have arisen from the way our communities are built right now, but also addressing the climate crisis and, you know, the kind of existential threat that that poses to us, it's really essential that we start to make those investments and make those changes so that we can realize those benefits, you know, a few years down the road, 10 years down the road, whatever. Awesome. Yeah, it. It it is a solvable problem if we if we focus on it in the right way. So that, yeah, that and stop good. getting distracted by Elon Musk and these other <laughs> tech folks. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. How can people uh, stay up to date uh, with what you're doing and also get your book? Absolutely. You know, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, they can obviously find me on Twitter at Paris Marks, where I tweet a bit too much, I think is fair to say. Uh, they can find the podcast on, I, I would say, pretty much any podcast provider, likely wherever they listen to your podcast, mm -hmm. um, Tech Won't Save Us. And, you know, the book is really available pretty much everywhere. Um, you know, you can ask your local bookstore to bring it in um, or, you know, you can go to Verso Books, which is the publisher, get it off of them. Sure, Barnes & Noble has it in the States and, you know, big booksellers in Australia and Canada will have it too. And if certainly there is, you know, a big horrible tech giant that sells a lot of books that sells it as well. But I can't I can't in good conscience recommend that you buy it from them. <laughs> try, try and buy it from your local bookstore if you can. I yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much.